All right, well, go ahead and be seated. Oaths and retaliation, but oaths first. How many guys take oaths? No, don't, don't, don't say that you take oaths. An oath, a promise, a vow to swear by something greater than yourself, greater than oneself, uh, or to uh, even swear um, at the risk of one's own life. As Jesus mentions here, you know, to swear by someone's own head. Uh, funny part about the whole thing in the text is just swearing and making oaths as if you own everything as a human being. And uh, that seems to come out as one of the big problems. I've always uh, kind of had it, uh, you know, taken issue with oaths um, because it, it assumes that otherwise I would lie. And I feel like, well, then I don't want to take an oath, you know. I don't want to be put under oath. It just assumes we have to compel someone to testify under oath. It assumes that they lack the integrity to tell the truth. And uh, so that's, it's funny stuff. So let's look at it here. Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the, the Lord. Now in their oral tradition, the rabbis had summarize this particular law, I, I guess we might say well enough, but as usual, their interpretation was um, amiss, it was, and it was misleading. The, the reference to the law, uh, this reference that Jesus makes, is kind of a, a compilation of a few texts from Leviticus 19, verse 12, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, and then also Deuteronomy 23, 21. And as you know, there's almost no harm in simply quoting a text of the Bible. The real problem arises with the interpretation and then the application to those passages. How someone explains the meaning of a text and how they apply it to life is where things can either be helpful or they can be hurtful. And sometimes to uh, very ex extreme degrees as far as being hurtful. I think the Inquisition would be a good example of that. Uh, various... Um, prosperity, doctrines, and so forth, um, heresies. So, of course, we know Jesus, throughout his sermon, he happens to be confronting and correcting these very bad interpretations and the practices that followed. He says, but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. In other words, it's, it's not your heaven, so don't swear by it nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, probably a reference to King David. He says, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, um, I would say perhaps even the Sadducees, they, they stood for truth and honesty, but when it came to swearing by an oath to do something, uh, they applied some different rules, rules that provided them sort of a way out, a way that they could evade a responsibility that they committed themselves to. And so what they did was they kind of created different classifications of oaths that would either bind them to their word or, as we said, give them a way of escape. Okay? According to their tradition, if anyone swore to do something by invoking the name of God, they were absolutely bound to their word. As long as they invoked the name of God, so they, they would say, 
if they said, they say, I swear by the Lord God of heaven that I will give 10% of my grain to the poor. They would say, well, then I'm bound to give it. If they did not keep their oath, then they felt like then they would be accountable to God himself. That was the, how their logic went. But if they were to swear by heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, or by one, one's own head, as Jesus mentions here, they could pretty much evade their oath if they were inconvenienced by it. They were off the hook. Because they did not invoke the name of God, they would not suffer you know, any kind of consequence from God, so it wasn't that big of a deal. So if they said, I swear by Jerusalem that I will give 10% of my grain to the poor, they could default on their oath, and well, it wasn't in the name of God, so no big deal. They could back out of their commitment without any real harm. My nose is running like crazy. Thanks, Gabe. Plug your ears for a second. Okay. All right, well, I'll just leave this here just in case. So, you know, if they made a vow like that where they did not, you know, invoke the name of God and, and they were confronted about it, they could say, whoa, whoa, don't you remember? It wasn't like I swore in the name of God. I swore by my own head. So what's the big deal, you know? And they thought they could be released from it. And so because these people were the teachers of Israel because they were those that were communicating supposedly the the very words of God to the people. The people were influenced by this garbage and they would then begin to practice and utilize this kind of nonsense in their business transactions, their communities. So Jesus responds. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, do not swear at all. So Now, of course, you know, the problem is not with oaths or promises. The problem is with with us. It's with us, okay? It is because of dishonesty that we we put others under oath, especially in legal proceedings. Uh, We would say issues of great import. You know, we repeat the words, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. Even in our culture, we want to invoke the name of God, uh, albeit in many cases superstitiously, uh, to try to get a more truthful response out of people. And it's interesting, outside of this context, in many ways, you know, people, politicians, criminals alike, will lie through their teeth and later say they were not compelled under oath to do so. Where do you think they learned that from? You have heard it said. <laughs> yeah, requiring oaths implies that people would not otherwise be, it implies they would be dishonest. We say that oaths are reserved for solemn situations. But for the believer, isn't when truth is on the line a solemn situation? I mean, it may not be for the world, but we are to be the people of truth, people of veritas, what is true of integrity. It's interesting, Jesus was not the first to view this uh, rabbinical practice as morally askew. The law itself forbid this kind of thing. Uh, They must have missed Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by any agreement, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So whether it was a vow to the Lord or just an agreement between two parties, it could not be broken according to the law. So they were actually in their classification of oaths, they were violating the very law of God in what they were doing. It wasn't just a bad interpretation. They were in stark contrast to 
the scriptures, contradicting them. Even during the time of Jesus, there were those who were very cautious around uh, rabbinical tradition. Uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus said that the Essenes, and the Essenes were a community of Jews that lived out in the Judean desert. It's actually where it's from the Essenes that we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? He says that they were vehemently opposed to oath-taking of this nature. He reported eminent, they, the, the Essenes were eminent for fidelity and are ministers of peace. Whatsoever they say also is firmer than an oath. Swearing is avoided by them, and they esteem it worse than perjury. For they say that he who cannot be believed without swearing is already condemned. I kind of like that. I mean, if someone lies, don't they lie whether they're under oath or not? Yeah. yeah. So much of rabbinical tradition was not about honoring God's word. Oftentimes it was uh, just creative ways to evade its true principles. And Jesus is going to really get on that later, uh, not in the Sermon on the Mount, but elsewhere. And the truth is, you know, we know intuitively that we should do what we say. Isn't that true? Say yes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. And it doesn't require the law to demand it. Pagans have this same moral sense. And Paul says in Romans 2, they don't even have the law, but by nature they do the things that are written in the law. They know it intuitively. It doesn't mean that they always follow their conscience in these matters, but they know that they ought to. Okay? They know that it's best to, that it's right to. And also everyone that has been promised something but was lied to knows that lying is wrong. That's right. If you want the essence of what is right in a matter, don't ask the liar. Ask the one who was lied to, and then you'll get a good answer. Leaving a way out for yourself when you give your word is wrong. It's better to give your word on condition. Just be up front. Give it on condition, okay? It's better to do that than to make an oath which binds you. So Jesus concludes this way. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Do you love it how Jesus can just take all of the law and just simplify it? Why don't you just say yes or just say no? If you agree to do something, do not swear or make an oath. Just say yeah and follow through with it. We don't need to hear about your mother's grave. You know, your word is a Spaniard or your father's sword. Some of you are laughing because you got the reference. Okay, the rest of you have to Google it. <laughs> Just do what you say you'll do, okay? People who add oath upon oath do so because they're unbelievable people. Have you ever met these people? No, I swear. No, really, I'll do it, I swear. My mother's grave. And they're, you know, they're, I don't know what you would call it, but it's just... Their integrity is just diminishing in your eyes. You're going, I don't really believe this person. The more they talk, I just think it's going to happen. If you were uninvolved in something that someone thinks you were involved in, don't swear that you were not. Just say, no, I did not. I was not. Nothing more is really needed. Just tell the truth. Do what you say. You know, if you add an oath or you swear, I think it just makes you suspicious. And then Jesus says that anything beyond yes, anything beyond no is from the evil one. Now, depending on the translation that you have in your hands, the passage may say from the evil one, meaning Satan, or it says that it comes from evil or is of evil. Uh, which one is correct? Well, perhaps all of them, if all things are considered. The Greek does not say the evil one. It just says evil. The translator, if he's able, must determine by the grammar and the context how to render what is actually meant when that is said. 
And here, very capable scholars on both sides, they don't really, uh, I would say they just differ in translation. If Jesus is referring to the origin of evil from which you know, lying and deceit has come, then we're certainly talking about Satan, who Jesus says is the evil one. He's the father of lies, and he lies because, well, it's his, it's his nature to do so. Satan is the first liar. But if Jesus is referring to evil in general, he's talking about us. He's talking about what is in us and comes out of us when we provide some kind of word. Uh, that shouldn't surprise us. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked. Okay, so out of the abundance of the heart, what does Jesus say? The mouth speaks. Okay, But of course, we are this way because of the fall. Uh, but we can't forget that the fall was instigated by Satan. That's right. He didn't cause the fall, but he certainly influenced it. Adam is the cause, but Satan played this significant role in lying and deceiving to Eve, which then made it harder for Adam. Okay? So I think that both translations are viable. What we need to be clear about is that Jesus is not saying that the devil is the cause of someone lying or not following through with their word. He's not to blame for someone making a hasty oath. No one should turn to this passage and say, the devil made me do it. Okay? The devil made me do it. He, of course, the devil's the best at what he does, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But even if he manages to deceive you as he did Eve, you're still culpable for your actions, just as Eve was. Something about delivering babies was really bad after all that, Right? So being deceived or influenced does not remove moral responsibility or accountability. Okay, so the question that we have to address at this point is, is there ever an appropriate time to take an oath? Because Jesus said, do not swear at all, verse 34. Is Jesus saying that there's no context where an oath is appropriate? How many guys have been put under oath in court? Okay, is Jesus condemning all oaths in every circumstance? Should we allow ourselves to be placed under oath? in court? Should we make vows when we get married? How many of you spouses would like to hear vows when you get married? Or glad you did, rather. When Jesus says, do not swear at all, is he condemning only the kinds of oaths that he mentions in verse 34 through 36? Or is it everything? If we're allowed to, or if he's just condemning those other ones, is there a time to invoke the name of God when we commit to something? These are good questions. I'm glad you asked. We should probably look at them. First of all, in the whole Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is saying, you have said, and then he either quotes verbatim part of the law or he abbreviates something from the law or he even quotes what the the Pharisees and the rabbis have said about it. Uh, Jesus never once makes a correction to the law of God, does he? That would be very bad if he did. He said, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Amen. The only thing that Jesus does is he corrects the bad interpretations of God's word. Now, the law of God does not condemn oaths. Now, typically in the law, it's it's regulating uh, voluntary oaths. But there are times when oaths are required or uh, they're expected. Okay. And then as we look through the Old Testament, many godly men, many godly women in the scriptures made oaths, they made vows. So Jesus is not you know, condemning outright all oath-taking or vow-making. 
It is interesting, in the New Covenant, though, there are no vows or oaths expected of the Christian as they are in the Old Covenant, okay? And for one, well, I for one anyway, I think that it's very unwise to make an oath in regard to a New Covenant principle because Jesus and the apostles never provided any instruction to do that, and we never see any of them doing that. So you would kind of be out in no man's land if you were taking oaths and and things like that in regard to a new covenant principle, okay? For example, we are told to be honest people in the new covenant, and we should, but Jesus and the apostles themselves never make a vow to always be truthful, to always be truthful. And they never instruct us to make a vow to be honest. If, If we are commanded to be honest as Christians, there's no vow that's going to guarantee that we will do that. You understand? As Christians, we learn God's word. We acknowledge that we're to obey it, and we should do it. There's just no examples of teaching or examples of vows. So I think it's foolish. I think it's presumptuous. Now, there are some examples of vows in the New Testament. In Acts 18, Paul took a personal vow, and he shaved his head. We do not know what the vow was. Some say it was a Nazarite vow, but you can't take a Nazarite vow unless you're in Jerusalem, okay? And he wasn't. He was in Corinth. So we have no idea what it was. Uh, We don't find that him instructing us to do that. So maybe it was just completely a personal thing. He took a vow, shaved his head as a reminder, and um, who knows what was going on. Again, in Acts 21, 26, Paul appears to have actually taken a Nazarite vow. He's back in Jerusalem for the very last time. Uh, It's not a vow for us today. And uh, why exactly Paul did it is mystifying to me. There's so many various opinions from uh, different Bible teachers on it that it's hard to narrow down why exactly Paul would do that. But on multiple occasions, Paul calls God or Jesus to be his witness, okay, to, as to the veracity of his claims. Uh, Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians 1, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, and 1 Timothy 2. A lot of vows there. A lot of vows there or uh, calling upon God to be his witness. Now, the difference between what Paul did in these examples and what Jesus was referring to is that Paul was not vowing to do something. Paul was swearing that he was doing something or had already done it, already done it. It's far, I think it's safer and wiser to make a vow and to regard to what you've already done than to swear that you will do something. You know what I'm saying? I have done it. God is my witness rather than I swear by God that I will do it. I think you just get yourself in trouble. Yeah. Our regular practice as believers when we agree to something should just be simple yes. And when we deny something, it should be no. Don't give hasty answers. Uh, count the cost before you give your word. Now, when it comes to marriage vows, um, it is your responsibility to know what it is that God requires of you in the marriage. Acknowledge it and by the grace of God, grow in it. If you're married and you don't know what God has covenanted you to in the marriage, come talk to me. Uh, I know them all by heart in the scriptures, okay? Because uh, I know I'm accountable to it. It's my job description. And uh, all husbands, all wives, we should be ready to roll with it. Amen? Amen, wives? Okay. Amen, husbands? All right. Okay. <laughs> Good stuff to memorize. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess in a concluding thought of all this, of all people on the planet, we who belong to Christ, uh, 
um, and live for his fame and glory should be the most truthful. We should be the most loyal and reliable. Amen. Let's move on. Retaliation. We love retaliation. Revenge, retribution, vengeance, returning evil for evil. That's essentially what these words boil down to. They do. Let's look at what Jesus says about it. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this is a, a partial quotation of a few passages in the law. The idea is certainly intact. Here's the primary text. He says, but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This law is referred to as lex talionis. You guys have heard that. Lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation. Uh, I do not believe that this is a law of retaliation. Uh, I think that's a bad way to render it uh, because the law does not allow retaliation. So why have we called it the law of retaliation? Even my subheading has retaliation in my Bible. Very interesting. Um, The law itself was good, I believe, uh, but one that could certainly be abused when not regulated properly. Uh, The misunderstanding was about its application, and it was not prescribed for private retaliation or personal revenge. Otherwise, a blood feud would eventually follow, okay? Because they would just go tit for tat. It would be like gangsters in the day, okay? And uh, exacting revenge was not the intent of this law. Justice was. As I said, vengeance is condemned in the law. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance. How much clearer could you, you be on that? Okay. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Jehovah. That's like saying, I'm God Almighty and you will listen to me. There is no revenge. There's no grudges. There's just love. Okay. Even the Proverbs warn about retaliation. Solomon said, do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 29. He also says the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 19, 11. This law was intended to be handled in the courts, in the courts. And the facts were to be ter- determined by witnesses, which was always required in the law, Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 18. Okay. The intent of the law was to administer justice and no more. Because oftentimes, as people, we're not satisfied with justice. We want a couple tons of flesh, right? If somebody hits me, I'm going to hit them back harder. Because we think we want to ensure that they can't hit back. Now, I think there's a context for that, actually. I'll get into that later, okay? But in what Jesus is saying here, that is not the case, okay? This law was placed boundaries on the extent at which someone could be punished for an offense, Okay. So if you knocked someone's tooth out through malicious intent, the law ensured that the injured person could not then have all your teeth knocked out. All right? In fact, lex talionis was not always used literally. Quite often, a dollar amount okay, appropriate to the injury, uh, the inconvenience was often required in the place of eye for eye or so forth and so forth, okay? But the law did not require this. It permitted it under certain circumstances. Forgiveness and mercy could be extended to the offender, which often had a better effect. How many, guys, how many times 
in your life do you think you've been more wounded by someone's mercy than by someone's justice? By someone extending forgiveness to you, did, was that more effective than them giving you justice? You know, my mom, you know, she put up a lot with a lot when uh, me and my brothers were growing up. Um, I was in competition for the worst. And what, what always was more troublesome to me was not discipline. I mean, what's discipline anyway to a teenage boy? But it was when my mom would start crying. I couldn't handle that. That hurt worse than anything. Because I knew if she was crying, she wouldn't discipline me. And I know that I deserve to be disciplined. I should have been beat. Okay? But her crying cut to my heart. That was the hardest thing ever. Okay? It's crazy stuff, the way that our hearts can work sometimes. If someone injured you in the law, even intentionally, you were permitted to overlook the person's offense. You did not have to administer justice or to require it. In fact, one could only withhold justice but offer kindness. Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. You, you, you didn't even just have to remain passive in regard to someone's transgression. You could just turn around and bless them. Paul repeats this proverb in, in Romans 12 as a way to, he says, to overcome evil, to overcome evil. Uh, David, I think, is a great example of someone who was very familiar with the law of God and oftentimes when he was wronged, he would not retaliate. He would overlook things. Now, there, now I mean, there's one instance with Nabal where if it wasn't for, um, what's her face? Abigail. If Abigail hadn't come out, he would have killed Nabal and all the men in, in his family. Okay? But there's other times. You know, we have King Saul. King Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions. He was hunting him like a wild animal. And on two occasions, David could have killed him. And David said, no, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. He says, I'm going to leave this man to God to deal with. And God did deal with him. You know, and David was fleeing Jerusalem uh, because Absalom had fashioned an army against him. He wanted to spare the people of Jerusalem. So he was going to take the fight elsewhere. And as he's leaving, one of Saul's relatives is berating him, kicking dust on him and throwing rocks at him. And one of David's mighty men says, hey, let me go lop off this dead dog's head. And David's like, just chill out. Maybe the Lord sent him, and then they keep walking. Of course, Jesus was the greatest example of mercy and forgiveness. He was innocent. He had done no wrong, and yet when he was wronged, he did not revile in return. He did not lash out, but he said, Father, forgive them. If it wasn't for all of that, we would be toast. Okay, he forgave us. So how was it that the rabbis were interpreting or using this particular passage? that Jesus is referring to. Well, according to their tradition, they appealed to this in order to justify personal revenge. They taught the people that if someone were to do this to you, you could do that to them, as if God was encouraging retaliation or revenge. They used it to justify personal vendettas. Their view, as we know the Pharisees anyway in their character, it lacked mercy and it misrepresented God's heart. Truth is, man is a relentless rebel, and yet God is gracious to us. He allows the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. God could justly wipe out the human race for our atrocities, and yet he's extended mercy to us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So how much more should his people, who are redeemed, exercise that same behavior toward our fellow man? So far from justifying personal vendettas, 
this law was intended to limit the extent of judgment on the guilty. But the scriptures say it is for us to overlook a matter. Jesus responds to the personal vendetta interpretation this way. He says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. How many of you guys are good at that? How many of you guys have been literally slapped? I mean, did that just calm you down? <laughs> you know, like here, this one too, and put some stank on it. <laughs> How many of you guys are good with insults or attacks on your character? Does that just calm you right down, even when it's justly given? I've been rebuked, rightly so, and it takes me a minute or a couple days, right, to be able to respond and react and repent appropriately. Yeah. The issue of slapping someone in the Jewish culture was deeply insulting. Uh, this is described in the Jewish Mishnah, uh, Baba Kama. If a man was to use the back of his hand to strike another man on the face, it was considered a grave insult. But if he used his open hand to slap another man, it was double the insult. So this is not too bad. This is real bad, okay? Real bad. Now, if somebody was to slap you, especially if you're a Jewish man with a big, bushy Jewish beard, there could be some physical pain involved, but not that serious. But physical pain wasn't the ultimate intent of the one who did the slapping, not in this historical context. The intent was to deliver an insult. The intent was to injure someone's pride, not harm their person. So Jesus isn't addressing the issue of physical assault. Culturally, this was not a physical altercation, even though the gesture was given by the hand. Jesus is confronting the issue of how his people should rep- respond to insults, to slander, to character assassination. The rabbi said that if someone insulted you in this manner, you should return the gesture. They have injured you, so make sure that you injure them back. It's eye for eye. It's tooth for tooth. Injury for injury. But Jesus, he rejects this response, partly because that's not what this law is talking about, and to, but most of all, because returning insult for insult is ungodly. It's to return evil for evil. There's no virtue in it. To the contrary, Jesus said, do not return the insult. Return your other cheek to them. Let them keep insulting you. Please, just keep it coming. Let it happen. Now, Jesus uses one of the more extreme examples of shaming in the Jewish culture to say that if I've called you to overlook this major offense, I'm calling you to overlook all lesser crimes. Let's start up here. And this and everything below it is to be overlooked. It's to be overlooked. Don't resist the person. Don't put up a fight. Just let them attack your character as they do damage to their own. God will vindicate you. Yeah. Now, I think that the Pharisees' idea of lex talionis is in vogue today. I would say especially among those in Western culture. You know, it's very popular these days to be offended by the smallest infraction, a verbal insult, a criticism, or a remark. You know, micro-offenses are made out to be the worst thing that has ever happened. And to exaggerate the offense even further, we say things like, what that person said to me was horrifying. Man, what, what word do we use when something is actually horrifying? It's horrifying. Insulted me. It's terrible. It was degrading. It was dehumanizing. And in our culture, we're encouraged to put on display for the whole world to see 
just how offended we are. And then after we broadcast our pain, we turn to punish the offender by an onslaught of slander as we demand their public apology because nothing is more important at this point than to get our pound of flesh. And then we take to Facebook. We take to Twitter. The almighty Twitter. Jesus is telling us to let the world be offended and have their feelings hurt. It's not becoming of Christians to reciprocate an insult and listen, or to be offended. You guys, as Christians, we do not have the right to be offended. We don't. Jesus condemns this kind of temper tantrum and the venting of feelings. We should turn the other cheek. We don't have the right to be offended and then go tit for tat exchanging slandered insults. Besides, you know, if we had any real idea of how we compare to, to true righteousness and holiness, we would not care about the petty remarks from the peanut gallery. When people confess to me how bad they are, how rotten they are, I tell them, you don't know the half of it. Keep going. <laughs> when the world slanders you, you should say to yourself, they don't know the half of it. They're going to have to work harder to describe with any accuracy the depravity of my heart. The truth is, my sin is so grave that it required the Son of God to be tortured to death for me to be forgiven. You're going to have to try harder than that. Okay? They haven't a clue, and if they did, what thesaurus could describe the depth of my transgression? The point is, is that the reason we want to retaliate is because we're proud. You're talking to this? This is amazing. How dare you? No, it's, it's not. Nothing in reality would testify to that. Okay? Retaliation to an insult is rooted in pride. To use a common vernacular, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Now, of course, there's another interpretation of this passage that concludes in what is called the doctrine of non-resistance. How many of you guys are familiar with non-resistance? It's a doctrine of the, the Mennonites, uh, the German Baptists, a few other groups, um, which states that Christians are not allowed to defend themselves or anyone else, uh, even under the threat of injury or death. Um, now, this interpretation, it, it lacks historical context and biblical support. Okay, I, I don't see it anywhere in the scriptures. It's certainly not in this text, not historically. Uh, now, I do not believe in taking vengeance. I do not believe in retaliation. I don't believe in personal vendettas. You know, if you went to my house today and spray-painted my house because of something I said from the pulpit, I would not follow you to your house and spray-paint your house. Okay? I would hate you in my heart because <laughs> I have a brick house and it's really hard to get paint out of brick. <laughs> That's retaliation. Uh, I don't believe in that, but I do believe that a believer can defend their own life and the life of others, especially others in most circumstances. You know, if someone is a threat to the well-being of my family, I quickly and intentionally become a very dangerous person. And if I do physical harm to an assailant defending my family, I will not feel guilty about it. I won't, okay? I won't. I will turn into a completely different person in those circumstances, as should every husband and father, okay? I believe that. I believe we have a moral obligation to be like a God in those circumstances. We've been creating the image of God. I know intuitively that if you assault my wife, I'm going to assault you, okay? It's going to happen. Yeah, if you reach out for one of my children, you may not get your arm back, okay? That's just the way it goes, okay? I find that in the scriptures, this responsibility to defend the innocent, the vulnerable, the weak, 
those under my care. Um, I would probably do the same for you, maybe not Gabe, but everybody else in the room. <laughs> we should protect. Yeah. But with that said, I do believe there's a time to voluntarily suffer and even die for the faith without providing resistance. I think there's a time for it. And uh, you and God are going to have to decide when that is. Okay. All right, let's keep going here. I'm gonna, I am going to finish all this text. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your car, give them your house also. I'm glad he stopped there with a few articles of clothing. Being sued is no fun, I'm certain of it, regardless of how petty. I've never been sued before, but I've certainly been accused of other things. Uh, growing up, I was a, a, a klepto, <laughs> even arrested for it. But when I was accused of stealing something I didn't steal, I couldn't believe how bad that hurt. Isn't that weird? The thief was never identified. They could never prove it was me, but they always assumed that it was me, which made things very, very awkward. Okay, yeah. So I can imagine being sued unjustly would hurt. Here, the item being sued for seems petty, but it may not be as petty as we think. A tunic was the inner garment of Jewish garb. It wasn't the loincloth, but it was what covered you know, the body more tightly, not firmly. And the cloak was the outer garment, okay? The, the average working class Jew had a second tunic. So it wasn't a huge deal to give up your tunic. But they typically did not own a second cloak. And so the law of God forbid that a man be permanently deprived of his cloak. Now this probably all seems very petty to us anyway, because, I mean, I look at all my clothes and I go, where do these clothes come from? It's a, it's a first world problem. We have all these clothes. But... People of that day didn't. If they had two tunics, that was, that was pretty good. And the average guy had one cloak, one cloak. The cloak, which they could not be deprived of permanently, was necessary for keeping them warm at night. It also served as their blanket. According to the law, a cloak could be received as a pledge, but it had to be returned to them before sundown, Exodus 22, verse 26 and 27. Jesus says, though, if someone sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak also. <laughs> well, hold the phone, <laughs> because this would have to occur in a court setting, and if I give them my cloak and my tunic, I have to walk home in my loincloth. Now, for that reason, uh, many commentators believe that there is some hyperbole here, okay, that Jesus isn't being completely literal, because to get a, a, a Jewish man to give up his, his cloak and tunic and then walk home through public in his his undergarments is very extreme, okay? It's not like here where people run down the road with nothing but a Speedo on, okay? Uh, I, it's, to me, it's still undignified, but to, to a Jew, it was huge. This is so interesting. To surrender your cloak was to deny yourself the right afforded to you by the law of God. As my kids would say, wait, what? Give up my legally protected right, my right to keep my cloak and stay warm at night. And this was not simply a right granted by human government, as we have here in America. This was a right afforded to the Jew by God himself. That makes all of this a much bigger deal. Jesus is telling his disciples that the time may come where you need to surrender your rights. That is what it takes to be my disciple. 
if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, deny himself. Now, Jesus here does not go to the extreme and say you should surrender your home or your livelihood if someone were to sue you for it. I'm glad he doesn't say that. He does not give an example where our life is being threatened. And I'm not sure to what extreme we should go to in surrendering our rights, but I do know that we are too fond of our rights and too happy to defend them in the West. The Jews at this time were under the tyranny of Rome. They didn't have many rights, and Jesus said, you need to be willing to give up more rights. That's really hard for us, I think. And I believe in the higher virtue of liberty as it's taught in the scriptures, but it's probably best to have someone else defend you than for you to always be informing us of your rights and insisting upon them. Amen? Doesn't that grow old? Now, all the rights of Western civilization have, I think, made us a petty people who are ungrateful. And I don't believe that that is what God intended for rights to do. Okay. The Christian attitude is that we should do all of this with a happy heart, not grudgingly, but willingly and happily when God calls us to. Okay. Jesus goes on, he says, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Uh, the reference to being compelled to go one mile has to do with Roman law. Uh, under Roman tyranny, a soldier could legally compel an Israeli citizen to carry his gear a prescribed distance of one Roman mile. That certainly irked the Jews. But Jesus says to his disciples, don't just go one, but go two with him. Instead of cursing the soldier in your heart, in the one mile, go two and bless him the whole way. Now, this would be a great way to gain a captive audience. You have their possessions in your care, and they really want to be relieved of them. So why not use it as an opportunity to share the gospel? I think it's great. You know, when Paul was chained up in a Roman prison, he preached the gospel to the palace guard and many of them received Christ. When he wrote the Philippians from a Roman prison, he said, oh no, by the way, all the palace guard says, howdy, he had led them to Christ. Perspective in all of this, these circumstances that Jesus is talking about, it's important. You know, Paul could have thought to himself that, gosh, I'm chained to Rome. But the way he dealt with it, he dealt with it as if Rome was chained to him. And he used it to his advantage for the glory of God. I think if Paul could do that in prison, certainly we can do it when we're inconvenienced by other people. Amen? He says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, Jesus does not quote, but he's likely referring to Deuteronomy 15 in regard to caring for those in need. Now, I think the passage itself is worth quoting because the text itself just possesses great clarity. Let me read it to you and I'll get you out of here. He says, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren, speaking of the covenant people, within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. That is when all debts were canceled and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and become sin among you. You shall surely give to him and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. 
For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brothers, to your poor and your needy in your land. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. God's covenant people have always been responsible for the covenant people, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. I can say New Testament because James and John both pick up on this and they almost quote parts of Deuteronomy 15. Nothing has changed in regard to God's heart in this context from either covenant. It was actually practiced by Paul. He went from church to church throughout the Mediterranean. He was collecting money for the poor church in Jerusalem. The covenant people were responsible for taking care of the covenant people. The generosity of the saints toward one another is an essential part of the faith. It's what Jesus is saying. And we should do it willingly. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, we should do it cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. All right, I got to get you out of here. I hope I can get all that done in first service or second service because if I can't, I'm in trouble next week. So pray for me. Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. Well, Lord, I, I, I'm so thankful, Lord, for your perspective And Lord, you just had such an amazing way of of taking every circumstance in life and using it as an opportunity to bless, even when you were being cursed. And Lord, you've called us to be the same, to have your heart toward people, to use terrible circumstances as an opportunity to bless, to preach the gospel. Lord, give us that heart, I pray, because it does not come natural to us. certainly doesn't come natural to me. Lord, we need your grace to see things your way, to be moved from within us, for compassion, the ability to forgive, to overlook a matter, Lord. Lord, help us to be like you. Help us to be wise, discerning, and loving. In Jesus' name, amen.